talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. I understand Bitcoin and under cryptocurrencies are taking a dive. There goes my babysitting money. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah. Come on, get up there and do your surf thing. Pretend you're on a board. Oh, it's not Friday yet. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. Will Weber on the board. Diane and Dave in the newsroom. Jump into the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, great day, man, especially if you're a Bulldogs fan. Uh, last night in the pound, the uh, Dogs beating Windsor 6-1. to OHL champs and on to the Memorial Cup. Congratulations to the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, great to see. And, uh, man, what, what, what a finale that was. Uh, and we'll talk about that coming up uh, a little later on. Also, uh, one of the reasons for playing that song, we just want to be, a, a, you know, be aware that, uh, as Jay said, that there is a, a thunderstorm watch. Uh, in effect, and uh, you know nothing, nothing happening. Don't want to, don't want to, you know, alarm anybody. But we are sort of ripe with those conditions that all of a sudden, you know, boom, we could get, uh, we could get hit with a, uh, with a good one. And in the Ottawa area, and sort of from there, uh, west, all the way sort of down that trough where we saw the damage just a few weeks ago, uh, right along there, there's, uh, there's warnings, and uh, in Ottawa, they're, uh, they're warning of a possible uh, tornado up that way. So just be aware, just be aware. That that uh, we are in uh, that sort of sweet spot where we could see a, uh, a sudden storm pop up because uh, obviously temperatures are incredibly warm today and there's a cool front coming in. So once those two collide, uh, you know, then there's obviously the chance for uh, for some pretty uh, um, interesting weather, for some uh, certainly weather that you'll have to prepare for. So just be mindful of that. Uh, Tis the season and, um, you know, we're in that sort of sweet spot. All right, enough of that. Uh, Christy Freeland, right now is uh, taking uh, questions, I believe, from reporters. She is uh, at the Empire Club and speaking about uh, affordability uh, and, and, and inflation and how her government is uh, going to get us out of that. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, obviously, the news department is on this and watching it, and we'll play clips for you and get some more information over the course of the afternoon on all of this. Um, but again, it's, um, I, I heard the first part of it and, um, you know, you're sort of hearing, hearing the same sort of things that, uh, we always hear. And that's, you know, making sure that money's going out to those, uh, that need it and, and those in, in, uh, you know, the lower income brackets and such. And again, I, I just keep, uh, I, I just keep shaking my head and I'm thinking Canadians want opportunity. That's what we need. We need opportunity. Uh, we don't need fish. We need the tools to fish and catch our own. And, uh, you know, there's no chatter of lowering gas prices, which, of course, uh, will affect everybody, including anything that moves on a supply chain, bringing down the prices of groceries and what have you. Uh, if you want to do something that will help everyone, because it's everyone that's suffering right now, that's the one thing you can do. And unfortunately, everybody is talking about high fuel prices and high energy prices and the lack of energy self-sufficiency, except for our prime. Minister. Uh, but again, uh, you know the story there. Um, 
as opposed to uh, building something, creating jobs, doing things that uh, we need to be doing, uh, you know, chatter locally of, of uh, and, it, it, you know, Hamilton's no different than every other city. Um, nobody's been building. Nobody's been keeping up with, uh, you know, infrastructure upgrades and, and maintenance that needs to be done, let alone larger projects to uh, be able to uh, accommodate a growing population, a growing country. And we've been sitting on this for the last, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, and no government wants to spend money. No government wants to to uh, uh, to spend tax dollars on this sort of things. And you can certainly understand the municipalities because they just have to pass it on to us, the taxpayer, as obviously the provincial and the federal governments do as well. Uh, but their, talk, uh, their pockets and their base is a lot bigger than, than what a municipality is. So, again... Uh, over the last several decades, we've had provincial governments and, and, and the federal government that just doesn't want to build more stuff. There's just too many things uh, getting in the way. And when we're moving forward, when we're building things for a growing economy, for a growing country, for a growing population, we're creating jobs. And when you create jobs, you don't have to provide handouts. I mean, there's always going to be a segment of the population that needs help. Everybody at some point in their life needs a hand up. That's one thing. Um, but to, you know, to just, we've got your back, we've got your back, we've got your back. Uh, we need someone that's got the front. We need someone who's going to give us opportunity. We need someone who's going to help us grow and provide our own self-sufficiency uh, and our own sustainability rather than just constantly handing out checks and, and, and putting that debt on the, the, the generations that come after us. But it'll be interesting to see, and over the course of the afternoon, uh, we'll dissect what's being said there and uh, pass it along to you. All right, other stuff we've got going on. Russia working to create a new G8. Man, that's all we need. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, this hour. Also, uh, Dan McTagg is going to be joining us talking about Line 5. Interesting uh, that the uh, the Chamber of Commerce for Ontario and Michigan uh, writing uh, respective uh, prospective officials on keeping Line 5 open and what it would do to uh, the economy and to just the the, the predicament we're in right now when you start closing things down. Um, you know, stopping building things is one thing and that's bad enough, but to close down stuff that we already have is just, it's, it's suicide and it's just, uh, it, it's old thinking right now. Uh, it's going to take a mixed bag, a mixed bag of solutions to get us into, uh, the next stage of all of this. Also, yesterday we were talking, uh, with Christian Leprec about a, uh, and fascinatingly enough, he being involved in, uh, a, a commission into the inquiry of, of money, inquiry of money laundering. Uh, both in British Columbia and across the uh, the country, we're going to talk to Sam Cooper, our national investigative uh, global news uh, reporter, and he has done extensive work on this and get his take on where we are now in this new report coming up. It's all coming up over the course of the afternoon on Hamilton today. All right, uh, the bizarre uh, uh, fallout. I don't know what it is. If this is uh, the fallout of a global pandemic or just uh, shifting geopolitics in the world. Uh, but now with a Russian invasion of Ukraine and where we are, uh, it, it seems that uh, the world is separating itself uh, again. And Russia is uh, apparently working uh, to create a new G8 uh, in response to ruptured economic ties with, obviously, the West. To tell, Let's talk more about all of this and what it means and if it's just another scare tactic or a possibility. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, it's good to have you here. I hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. Same to you. 
So what is your first thought when you see something like this? Is this more uh, posturing or is this the world dividing in half? It's not clear what's happened in terms of uh, actual concrete specific coming into existence of a new organization. Pravda uh, reported on this five days ago that there was going to be a new G8 with Iran and China. So now these other countries that are being mentioned, you know, India and uh, Turkey and Brazil, and have they actually signed on to this or not? Is this a new organization that's actually being launched or is this something that Russia would kind of like to do? The interesting things about uh, the two countries that are so far mentioned, Iran and China, is that those three countries, this didn't get picked up very much, just at the start of the war in Ukraine, those three countries held joint naval exercises uh, in the Gulf of Oman, where all that oil comes out. So it was a very aggressive move. The other states mentioned, uh, India is of particular interest to me because I followed it uh, for a very long time. It'll be very interesting to me to find out have each one of these states actually said, we want to form this, we plan to sign on? Or is this a, a, a wish list by the, actually, you have to pay attention to who said this. This is the head of their Duma. They, this is the, the equivalent of the parliamentary speaker uh, with actual power uh, in Russia. So um, does this surprise you? I mean, in retrospect, I, why why wouldn't they if that's the, the direction they're going? And I'm certainly not endorsing this in any way, but does it surprise you? Um, <laughs> or do they not get along? Do they get along that well? Is there a common enough thread? These are countries which have all refused. These are sanctions refusers. Uh, yeah. These are all countries which have not signed on to the sanctions which the U.S. has helped lead, but we are certainly part of that. The sanctions against Ukraine have not been signed on by these countries. Uh, It was at the start of this campaign by Russia that we got a lot of commentary. Yes, remember, it used to be the G8, but we, we kicked out Russia after they invaded Crimea in 2014. Mm. After that, Russia said, uh, well, you can't suspend us. We're quitting. So they left. Then the rumbling has been since then, well, they're still in the G20, very influential group. This is a broader group deliberately, G, the G7, not the G8. The G7 is the advanced industrial democracies, whereas the G20 is a much broader group. Canada helped play a role in bringing it together. A, a disparate group of major countries in the world. Russia is a member of that, of course. Why don't we expel them from there? And Mr. Putin at that point very mildly responded, go ahead, we have other friends. And that has not been picked up sufficiently either. They do have other friends. Mm. If you add together India and China, who have not signed on to the sanctions regime, along with Brazil, you've got uh, a lot of the, well over half the world's population and much of the GDP and if you add in the other countries uh, that are being mentioned, Iran you know, brings oil to the table. So uh, potentially this is an alternative grouping to challenge the role of the G7 uh, in the world. Will, will India go so far as to put its name on that? Will China even 
put its name on that. Uh, what about Turkey? And Turkey, of course, is a member of NATO. Is Turkey going to actually sign an anti-Western alliance at this delicate mm. time when there's a lot of mutterings about, you know, is Turkey really a member of the, G, of, of the NATO alliance? Is it really pro-West or not? They're trying to block Sweden and Norway from joining NATO. Uh, so why don't we kick them out? That's not likely to happen. Their geopolitical situation and position is too great. But all this adds up to the fact that, yes, something is afoot. We don't know quite what it is. Uh, and obviously, as you alluded to, uh, can you belong to one or another? Are the re- is the rest of the world going to have to pick sides here? We are heading into that direction. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think you and I have discussed it, Scott, is that since the invasion by Russia of its neighboring state, a land war in Europe uh, that was totally unprovoked, attention has shifted away from what was shaping up precisely along the lines you're talking about, kind of a realignment of the world because focus was coming in on China and it's uh, the way it does business, the way it treats its allies, and the way that uh, Xi Jinping has now been using a lot of muscle. You know, wolf warrior diplomacy has ruffled a lot of feathers around the world. All of that was just coming together. And basically, China has gotten off the hook because everybody's now preoccupied with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. So we have a, we do have a world which is looking to decouple. Uh, Russia has said, not let alone China, Russia has said as part of this announcement, it's not so easy to decouple from us, is it? Uh, the, hmm. the, economies, the economies of the West are crumbling because of the sanctions they put on us. And sure enough, if you go to take a look at the price of the gas, gas pumps today. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of grumbling all around the world that, you know, inflation and the cost of gas at the pumps, never mind Ukraine, we, we, want, we want to get rid of all this pain that's being inflicted on us. So um, there, is, there is a tussle growing between uh, major powers, and there is a geopolitical realignment coming, I think, as a result of Russia's return of history. They're their return to an old-fashioned form of, uh, well, remember, this is in the West. This is still common elsewhere. And that's why a lot mm. of states haven't signed on to the sanctions regime, is uh, we aren't in the West used to this old-fashioned kind of, we'll just cross into other neighbors' territory and grab it, uh, even though that is still a phenomenon elsewhere in the world. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, Russia, China, uh, a new G8. Is that where we're heading? Elliot, Is always fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Well, thanks, and same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Strongman Blues Remedy, a new blues musical collective featuring Steve Harrison Kennedy, Don Tyler Watson, Steve Mariner, Crystal Shawanda, and it gets uh, its release tomorrow. Uh, volume 1. Uh, from Steve Strongman, Hamilton producer, singer, songwriter, and guitarist extraordinaire. Steve, it is great to have you on the show. Nice to be here. Thanks, Scott. So uh, tell us about this. First of all, clearly there's going to be a volume two. Uh, that's the idea. Um, <laughs> I signed a deal with Stony Plain Record for, for, for two albums. And uh, when they said, let's call it volume one, I said, okay, I guess they want a volume two. So that's a good sign. That's perfect. Yeah, that's a that's a great thing to have worked into the contract. So uh, tell us what the objective is here. Tell us what you're trying to do. 
I basically have always had an idea that I would love to get together with some of my incredibly talented friends that all happen to be amazing Juno award-winning artists and, uh, and put together sort of almost like a Steve Strongman and friends kind of thing, which ultimately has become the Strongman blues remedy. Um, and that's exactly what we decided to do. I mean, I'm, I was very fortunate that, you know, coming out of this situation that uh, all through the pandemic, I've been basically working in the studio because there were no live shows and nothing else. So I'm, uh, I'm thrilled with the result, and uh, it's a pretty great record, I think. You know, it's interesting, too. I'm, I'm looking at, you know, obviously, uh, you yourself, Juno Award winner, Mel Brown Blues Award, uh, International Blues Challenge, Best Guitarist, uh, recipient of four Maple Blues Awards. What has the last two years been like for you with what we've all been going through? It's been a challenge, um, that's to say the least. I think depending on what you do for a living, the pandemic has hit people in different ways, but it was particularly hard for, for musicians in, in the entertainment business. Um, you know, it was hard for everybody, but uh, for me it was really, really difficult. But as I said at the beginning, I was kind of lucky to be approached by Stony Plain Records and, and Jeff Kulowek at Linus, and um, I was able to get a publishing contract um, for, for my entire back catalog at the very beginning of all this. So Ooh. it just seemed like a real natural fit for me to go, okay, I'm going to be in the studio. There's no shows happening. But, you know, I, I really, really missed uh, playing live because as you and I have talked about in the past, that's really the cornerstone of what it is I do as an artist. That feeling so of the, uh, getting up in this front, is of, very in front much, of an audience, right? Yeah, this is very much a product of a pandemic then. You know, and many artists I've talked to have done this. They just went into the studio we go or, you know, just start writing. Well, yeah, the, you know, the word for all of us, I think, has been pivot. We, had to, we have to do yeah. something. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of people didn't fare very well, and they had to get out of the music business altogether. Uh, it was a very, very real thing. If you only made your living, uh, I don't know any business, anybody that's trying to, to make a living that could just say, okay, I'm not going to make any money for two years, and everything's going to be fine. I mean, it's, it, yeah, it, it yeah. was absolutely terrible. So, so uh, before, before we get back to the album, what is next for you and touring? What does the summer look like? Are things back to normal, per se, or getting there? I wouldn't say back to normal. A lot of people are saying, oh, this is great. We're coming out of this and getting back to normal. But for the kind of artist that I am, uh, usually you're booking shows so far out. And what's happened during the pandemic is all of these shows that were booked were bumped. And people had tickets and they couldn't do it. And then mm. it was scheduled and rescheduled and rescheduled. So what we're seeing in the music industry is a real shortage of live rooms because they're already all booked up. So to come out with a new record and to try and put together uh, national tours and international tours, it's really, really hard because there's so many, there's a backlog, right? But having said that, I'm, I'm thrilled to be saying I am getting back. Things are opening up a little bit. We are getting a chance to, uh, to get on stage. And, and one of those times is at the brand new Ancaster Memorial Arts Center next Friday night. Um, mm. where some people are going to be joining me. Harrison Kennedy's going to be there. Don Tyler Watson's coming in from Montreal. Uh, Jesse O'Brien on piano. My band, Dave King, on drums. And Colin Lapsley on bass. So it's, it's going to be an absolutely incredible, incredible night. And uh, I'm also happy to say that it is sold out already. So. Boy, you know, I can, I can listen to what you've done. What album is this for you? Eight. <laughs> you can hear the maturity. You can hear... Uh, you can hear the the, the history uh, in in just even that first track that I heard. You've you've really uh, I don't want to say age, but with blues, that's what it's all about, is it not? It's about that that character, that that depth. Right. 
Uh, well, thank you for that. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think so. Hopefully what we're doing is constantly getting better. That's, you know, you don't want it to be the other way. So, um, and, and in blues, it seems like it's this style of music, the more experience that you have, you hope that you continue to get better and the more that it happens. And, and I certainly think that that's what's happening for me. I feel like that anyway. I work at it every day still. And uh, yeah. although I've had to change the, you know, from the last couple of years, the live component, of course, of what I do, I'm getting much uh, better as a producer and in the recording studio. And, and that's been a positive thing. You know, too, you were talking about how there's this backlog of shows and, and a shortage of rooms. Maybe this, a positive out of this was, and, and this won't be immediate, obviously, but maybe we're going to see more interest, more rooms, more places where you can go see live music coming up, popping up. I certainly hope so. I, I think that one of the things I'm hearing from a lot of people, uh, you know, fans of mine and people that I know that love live music is how much they missed it. That's, and, and that yeah. seems like... Yeah. It's obvious, but but it's not really like I hope that people come back and realize what a special thing it is to actually be able to buy a ticket, go out and be in a room no matter what size it is, whether you're playing, you know, a, a big arena or stadium or anything to be together and ha share that live experience. I hope that comes back stronger than ever. So how, when you're putting an album like this together with, you know, various personnel and, and mentors or people you've worked with, peers, what have you, how do you decide who gets what? How do you decide who writes what? Who do you decide? Uh, how does everything fit together? Well, I was, I'm the principal writer, so I wrote all yeah. the material. But what I did is I purposely left a little bit of room within each song for an artist that I thought was going to do it. Like, for example, on, on the track that I did with Harrison, that was a true co-write. He came to my house and we sat down and started playing it. And it happened and came together very quickly and very organically. On other songs, I'd have it, you know, maybe 70, 80 percent done. But I would approach people like someone like Don Tyler Watson and say, you know, Don, I, I really want you to put your stamp on this. And if there's any lyrics that you don't feel you can get behind, then we're going to change them because I want you to be able to get behind it because you're going to be singing it rather than just completely finish something and give it to somebody and say, OK, I want it to sound like this. So that was the approach that I had with all the co-writes on this. And I really so any surprises when you do any surprises when you do that? Like, oh, my goodness. Like, and that's not what I expected. Yeah, the, the one I had actually sung um, a song called I Don't Miss You. And it's uh, to me, it's kind of a special track on, on the record and um, basically getting Harrison to sing it and, and how it completely changed the landscape of, of the song. Just his voice and that experience that you mentioned earlier. You know, Harry's 80 years old and he yeah. sounds better than I've ever heard him sing. He literally is better yeah. than ever. Um, so that was a, a surprise for me because I had sung the song and given it to him and said, Hey, what do you think of this song? And Harry said, I love that song. And I said, I think you should sing it. And he just, he just, you know, hit a home run. He just knocked it over. Takes it over. Yeah. That's amazing. I cannot wait to hear this. Uh, Steve Strongman, Canadian blues artist, obviously a uh, Juno award winner, Mel, Blo uh, Mel Brown blues award, uh, just to name a few and a brand new album coming out. It's uh, drops tomorrow. Strongman blues remedy volume one. Hopefully there'll be uh, many more after this featuring a whole uh, wave of great artists and uh, Friday night. You're in Ancaster. That's a sold out show uh, website. We can go to, to find out where you are going to be, Steve. Yep, you can go to stevestrongman.com or also strongmanbluesremedy.com. All right, there you go. Strongman Blues Remedy Volume 1. It's out tomorrow. Steve, best of luck with all this, and we'll chat soon. Thanks a lot, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
We would love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. And you're active today. I love to see it. Uh, Mr. Lowe has sent us a note. Excellent comment, Scott. Uh, this country can do great things if we only sit down together, discuss, and work out differences and move forward for the benefit of all. Uh, we did it after World War II, and look what this young nation did in the late 50s, the Avro era. Wow, there you go. Uh, another history lesson from uh, Mr. Lowe. Also, going to play you a portion, and feel free, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Here's what Tony had to say about my initial comment, I think, at the top of the show, in regard to the government should be doing more to lower gas prices. Here's a portion of what Tony said. Okay, I'll go for it. This is Tony LeBlanc, and I'm listening to, for Scott, you're saying that the government should do this and should do that. Well, the government cannot, has no control over the cost of food or the cost of, of gasoline. And then Tony goes on to explain why. And, uh, you know, in, in any time that we lower the tax on fuel, uh, the companies just jack the price up. Um, <laughs> I think companies jack the price up no matter what. That's their game. It's They're in business. That's what, that's what they do. Um, but I think you're, unfortunately, Tony, I think you're incorrect when it comes to what we can do as far as where we are right now. Uh, inflation is through the roof. And, and the cost of living, every, I don't need to tell you, grocery store. Uh, gas station uh, doesn't matter what you're trying to do you know it was during the pandemic we all couldn't get wait to get back out and into the hospitality industry and go to the restaurants and go out and all this sort of thing and then you go woo we and you understand why of course but it's expensive it's more expensive it's way more expensive and the one common denominator that our prime minister seems to be ignoring is gasoline energy and energy self-sufficiency and by lowering or, or getting rid of some of the taxes that we pay for his green energy program, which is yet to hit any of its targets, it would really help people out a lot. And it would help everyone out. It would help everyone out because as far as the price of groceries, well, groceries get delivered by truck. Every grocery store has trucks coming and going. And the price of fuel has doubled. So that's why you're seeing one of the reasons you're seeing high grocery prices, as you're seeing high prices on anything that is part of a supply chain. So in other words, unless you're growing it in your backyard, you're going to pay more for it. And that's a result of gas. And, 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 and the amount that you pay in taxes per liter is massive. And a break on that would do a lot to helping people as opposed to ripping us off at the at the pumps with with over uh, taxation and then handing it all back and redistributing the wealth i mean come on uh at the end of the day everybody everybody is talking about high gasoline prices except the prime minister's office uh let's play another clip this time from bob he's talking about you know the gst the hst there's your problem here's what bob had to say I'm Bob. I'm a 77-year-old person, and I recall when uh, Maroney and the GST and the manufacturing sales tax, the argument was, and the people voted against the GST, but the politicians said, hey, this ain't a democracy. You're getting GST. And the result is what we have today, where we cannot compete against ourselves. Uh, people come to Canada 
enjoy our motels and hotels, they get rebated, the GST and the HST. But a Canadian comes down from, say, Timmins to a hotel, he's going to pay the full taxes. Uh, we're competing against ourselves, and we're losing. So uh, if we want to do anything, get rid of this GST and HST and go back to the manufacturing sales tax, which was previous, and the country was doing so great. That's all I have to say. Thank you very much for having uh, let me speak my piece. You're more than welcome, Bob. And anyone who wants to, call Will, 905-645-3221. Start 9900 on your cell. You can ride live uh, shotgun with us, or we'll record you, and we'll uh, play you later. You know, I see the point on the GST and the HST, but I think that's an outdated argument in the sense that we're th- that's small potatoes compared to what you're paying in tax at the gas pumps. The GST and the HST, small potatoes. And... With tax on, on gasoline, as it goes up, they're making more money. So, again, I, I see your point about the GST and the HST, but that's a small pittance compared uh, to the taxes that we're paying on, on energy. A study on the perception of the news industry found that more people are avoiding the news and that Canada is among the countries with the higher levels of trust in the media. This was all done for Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. Found that uh, 42% of Canadians surveyed trusted the news compared with 58% back in 2018 pre-pandemic. However, that figure was higher than in the U.S. where only 26% of respondents said they generally trusted the news. To talk more about this, and we've talked about it before, Jeffrey Dvorkin, Senior Fellow at Massey College, former Director of Journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough uh, Campus and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Jeffrey, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fine, thanks. I hope you are too. How do you explain, thank you so much, how do you explain the difference in the numbers with Canada and the U.S.? Uh, 42% here, 26% there. Uh, trust the media, still either way, not good figures. But why even less so in the U.S.? I think what's happened in the United States is a cautionary tale for the rest of us. They have had a quality of journalism that varies greatly. It's either fantastic news gathering and contextualization of news, or it's scaremongering, which uh, a lot of a certain number of media organizations in the United States have decided that this is the way they're going to aggregate the audience by scaring the heck out of them. And the other thing is, is that the influence of the uh, internet and online uh, websites is very powerful in the United States, much more so than in Canada, partly because the Americans, God bless them, have that First Amendment, which guarantees the right of any person to say whatever that person wants. Whereas in Canada, we're a little more constrained, we're a little more uh, small C conservative. Uh, we are. We have a, a better sense of who we are as a country. I think the United States is starting to uh, it, it's starting to, to fall away from itself, from its original sensibilities. And I think that, that we're going to see a lot more divisiveness in the United States. Some of that's coming to Canada as well. But I think that the major difference is the intensity of the media culture in the United States and the lack of the same kind of intensity in Canada. Uh, are the lines becoming blurred between uh, news journalism, reporting, 
and commentary. Um, because, you know, obviously what I do, I'm a commentator. So I, I take a new story, offer opinion to it. It can go off in, in any tangent. And hopefully still based in fact. Whereas, uh, you know, our, our news reporters and the people that do the top and bottom hour news, they're reporting the news. There's no opinion there. They bop, 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 bop. Has that line been blurred? Because I'm hearing reporters say things today that, I don't want to sound like an old fart, but even, you know, and, and I, I have a lot of creative license here. They're saying things I'm not sure I would even say. And they're reporting. It's their job to just give us the facts. Well, I think that that's where the lines are getting blurred a little too frequently. One of the things that is valued in opinion journalism is that it is about uh, giving people, giving the audience, giving the readers, the listeners, the viewers, uh, a sense of an argument, uh, in the best sense of the word argument. It's about trying to convince people of a certain point of view. But that point of view has to be based on a certain level of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just make it up. And I no. think that what's happened in the States, more so than in Canada, and partly because we have a, well, we're more, as I say, more conservative, we have more of a strong regulatory sensibility, where as the Americans, in my opinion, and having lived there for a dozen years, they are in awe of that First Amendment, which guarantees free speech to anyone. Um, and in Canada, we... Don't, we admire the First Amendment, but we don't worship it. And I think that's that's a big difference. Uh, how much of this has to do, and especially now in where we are after uh, two and a half years into a global pandemic and such, how much of this is people uh, just don't want to hear it anymore? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm consciously trying to keep... Uh, the show positive, move it away from from COVID when we when we could, and so on and so forth. But it has been, and then boom, a convoy, then boom, a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. How much of this is it? It's just too much bad news for people, and they just need a rest. I think that's part of it. I mean, my I sense this, and the Reuters study seems to have confirmed it that people are exhausted. And what they're looking for is a little bit of escape or maybe even a lot of escape. Um, What they're finding is, according to this study, that the news that is given without an appropriate amount of explanation, of context, is what tires people out, tires me out, that's for sure. When I read in the papers or, or on the internet or other places, Something has happened, and the implication is is that I should be responding to what I have just consumed as information. And I think that one of the problems that we we all have, and this is not to cast aspersions on, on any part of the media landscape, is that news organizations have been, in my opinion, kind of deformed by the digital technology, the digital culture which allows for such a broader variety of ideas and opinions. And it's like being in the middle of a, of a some kind of information coliseum where you're just being attacked from all sides. Believe this, don't believe that. And I think people are saying, okay, I'm going to settle away from this for a little while until it gets sorted out. And I think that what this is is a cautionary tale for uh, journalists, for journalistic uh, 
organizations, for universities, is to keep providing or try to provide a little more context to help people understand what's going on. It's nice, it's nice to have all that information. The challenge for all of us is how do we turn information into knowledge hmm. without being, you know, you have to believe this and you have to believe that. This is, this is the dilemma that we're in because we are, as I think I've mentioned before, it's like trying to take a drink from a fire hose. You don't get, <laughs> you don't get a lot of nourishment or liquid and you, your lips are pretty sore after, after a while. And I think that this is, we have to figure out ways and, and news organizations need to figure out ways not that to do happy news or anything stupid like that, but mm -hmm. to give people a little bit of hope. Here's what's going on. Here's what it means. Here's what might, it might allow to happen next so that people can then say, okay, now I've got a better sense of what's going on. Hey, man. Jeffrey Dworkin with a senior fellow, Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Always fascinating, Jeff. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Cheers. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Money laundering activity has been and remains to be poorly understood, even by some of the public bodies that need to address it. And money laundering has rarely been given priority. Uh, too often, it has been largely ignored. That's Austin Cullen, author of uh, the Cullen Commission into Money Laundering in British Columbia, which, by the way, as Sam Cooper has pointed out many times, is not just a B.C. problem. Uh, after nearly three years, 138 hearing days, 198 witnesses, 1,000 exhibits, the B.C. government has uh, released the final report from the Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia. Christian Leprec spoke on our show yesterday about this. Uh, another person who's been following this uh, quite extensively over the years, Sam Cooper, National investigative reporter for Global News, author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and Chinese Communist Party Agents Infiltrated the West. And Sam is with us now. Sam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on this report and the fact that it took this long to do? The depth of this show the complexity of the issue? I don't think it showed the, the true complexity and scope of the issue with regards to the, the transnational crime uh, aspects that I pointed to and the high-level developers involved in developing big portions of Vancouver weren't touched at all. But what did shock me, and I, I, I really, uh, my eyes were opened, we saw the figure that $1.2 billion, that's with a B in large cash transactions, were accepted in BC casinos in one year, 2014. That was the peak year, the explosive year of money laundering. Austin Cullen said many. Indeed, uh, we, we, it looks like most of those transactions he's classifying fit the indicators of uh, criminal proceeds. We're talking bricks of cash in duffel bags. And so th that is a, that's an, an estimation of money laundering that vastly expands uh, what we've seen before from officials. I've estimated at least $2 billion going back to the early 2000s. And I think what, uh, what that finding indicates is this problem is even bigger than the most uh, aggressive estimates uh, that we've seen. Uh, the other big takeaways, Cullen slammed Canada's federal agencies, RCMP and FinTrack, for allowing this money laundering to grow in B.C. simply through a lack of attention and uh, ineffectiveness on the part of FinTrack's reporting regime. And, of course, the last big takeaway, 
Cullen found fault with senior elected officials that he said uh, essentially let this go when they were repeatedly warned from 2008 about this dirty cash and yet uh, he fell short of uh, finding corruption against those officials. Uh, as you're saying, they're not really willing to point fingers at this point, uh, which I guess isn't surprising considering they've been so lax to date. Uh, that being said, why is that? Why do they not want to ruffle feathers here? There's a number of theories of, uh, among my fellow reporters. You know, some people say th- this report did find fault. It, it really nailed down the scale and it made some strong recommendations that we see a provincial anti-money laundering unit to fill that uh, devastating federal gap. We see an independent commissioner of money laundering in BC that would not report to BC's government. I think we have to read between the lines and find that Cullen was saying there is some form of corruption if he wants an independent commissioner that won't have to report to the government of the day. But I really do believe, uh, and, and some of my colleagues find that in Canada, uh, governments do not want to point the finger at uh, powerful elected officials, powerful business people. Maybe it's part of our Canadian privacy culture, but uh, I, at the bottom, you know, I, I, I have to think that I've also heard from experts that lawyers really got a pass uh, in this in this inquiry. So when I boil it all down, uh, there there were strong findings here, but a lot was missed on the potential corruption side. Uh, that was my next point. Uh, obviously, uh, not a lot of, of emphasis put on corruption. Why is that? Because at the end, why have one of these inquiries if you're not going to get at the root? That's the $15 million question, and I raised that figure because that's what this inquiry cost, uh, two to three years. And uh, I, I, I want to say at this point that, look, I believe that this uh, inquiry was worth the money because Incredible amounts of evidence came out that will pave a trail for further investigations. I know of uh, there's a politician named Adam Chambers with the Conservatives that already is calling for a national inquiry. Uh, there's, a, there's a movement in Ottawa, I believe, that wants to see more action and realizes that at the top level, the federal government has to be responsible for a lot of this activity. Provinces can't do it alone. But uh, you know, uh, your, your, your question, Billy, goes to a core of what I've found, and I do believe there were strong indications of government corruption that I know of the reports that point to political corruption with transnational mm-hmm. crime, and the commission could have got into that, and they didn't, and I, I, I just don't know why. Uh, as this is certainly not just BC's problem, any chance other commissions, and we will delve into that side of this. I, I do think that this is directly connected to uh, money laundering in Ontario. So we, we do need, if not an Ontario qu- inquiry, a national inquiry. And Austin Cullen, even in his remarks yesterday, said the devil is in the details. There's a lot of activity that the provinces can't handle alone. It needs to be tackled at the federal level. The, the RCMP and the FinTrack are, dis- and are dysfunctional. So there does need to be more inquiries, preferably national level. We've certainly seen, and not to change topics here, stay where we are, but uh, obviously with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, lots of chatter about Russian oligarchs and, and, and money going here, there, and other places. Obviously, this inquiry has been been ongoing for three years, but do, do issues and stories like that draw more attention to this sort of thing? 
I do believe so. That's uh, that's an argument I, I've made uh, in a new chapter of my book, which you mentioned. I mention it because I've been delving into the Russian oligarch issues and finding that uh, uh, Vladimir Putin's government has been connected at a deep level with organized crime, where uh, the, the Western experts that I talk to say you can't see any division between the Russian government, its intelligence services, and organized crime. And that's exactly the issue that I uh, really uh, blew my mind by finding with regards to China and its networks. And my sources, some of them in the United States, say, look, the war in Ukraine was paved through this strategic corruption involving an authoritarian state that uses underground networks and criminals to evade sanctions, to move money around the world, to corrupt other governments. So I do believe that uh, the Cullen Commission is relevant to what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, the Russian situation and what's uh, and our focus on that is that taking attention away from the Chinese Communist Party's involvement. I, 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 I that's a tough question. I think you know uh, the, our our attention span as society can be moved very quickly. I've even heard that uh, the public is starting to lose interest in in the Russian war, which is uh, very yeah. sad to hear, and I don't think it's acceptable. But uh, to an extent, yes. The, uh, Look, COVID and the war in Ukraine took some attention off of this huge, huge uh, money laundering inquiry and the report in BC. But uh, as we, I think we're both uh, indicating, these issues do tie in when we're talking about geopolitics uh, and wars. It involves organized crime and money laundering used by other states. So the public can't be uh, uh, can't be confused and and distracted. Uh, fascinating issue and search uh, Sam's work on the line to find out, uh, get deeper into this. Sam Cooper with us, national investigative reporter, Global News, author of Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and CCP Agents Infiltrated the West. This uh, We're talking today about uh, the Commission on the Inquiry into Money Laundering in British Columbia coming out just yesterday. Sam, fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks very much. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As an organization, we have not done enough to ensure that every person in our city receives fair and unbiased policing. And for this, as Chief of Police, and on behalf of the service, I am sorry and I apologize unreservedly. This has nothing to do with the black community. In fact, the black community never asked for an apology. Neither did I think you were apologizing to the black community. This was you apologizing to your rank and file for uh, a series of in, um, information that we have been saying to you for decades that has been happening on the ground. Two clips there. First one, Toronto Police Chief, uh, Interim Police Chief James Raymer, and second from, from Beverly Bain, talking about uh, the apology that has been given by Toronto Police. All right, Toronto's Interim Police Chief, as we mentioned, apologizing as newly released race-based data from Toronto Police included that uh, concluded that black people were not only disproportionately represented in use-of-force incidents, but found that police pointed firearms most 
uh, often at the black population compared to uh, other communities. Police services were required to collect race-based data in 2020 when the Ontario government added perception of race to the use of force reports. Uh, Toronto Police Service also decided to include data involving strip searches in their analysis as well. To talk more about all of this, law- uh, lawyer uh, Kerry Mansad is with us and uh, joining us now. Uh, Kerry Mont, what are your thoughts when you hear this? What does this do for the discussion it's really nothing new um this information so Mm -hmm. the the data and statistics of course um the the report um is is groundbreaking in the sense that it's it's looking at um specific types of violence but people have been saying for a very long time that there is this disproportionate impact on policing, uh, particularly against the black community. Um, so an, an apology doesn't really do much for anyone. This is not new information. Uh, this all uh, as a result of a 2020 um, uh, race-based collection data that has started. What does that, what does that add to this? How has it changed the discussion? Is that why this is coming out now? The statistics matter um, in that they provide, I think, some additional context and grounding for people's anecdotal experiences. Um, So now there are actual numbers to look at. Um, But again, we've seen time and time again reports, uh, including from the Ontario Human Rights Commission, uh, about the impact uh, of policing on Black and racialized communities. Um, So it's new data, but the same conclusion that we are reaching um as you mentioned nothing new here um many in the community have known this for an awfully long time and and experienced this the fact that this has been acknowledged um does that matter does that count i suppose that's progress if we compare it to for example the tenure of chief fantino who outright denied that there was any systemic racism, and of course that that wasn't true and that wasn't the case. Um, so I su- suppose on some level um, that's an advancement, but what does it actually mean practically speaking? Uh, one thing that concerned me uh, from the press conference was um, the, the admission that this wasn't about penalizing individual officers um, that this we're looking at it systemically, um, but somehow missing the point that systemic racism is replicated by individuals. And so accountability has to be first and, and foremost in addressing this. So talk good now action um, is needed, obviously. Uh, can we get to the next step without taking this one? Uh, probably, the, the, I mean, this is an important advancement in that sense, that you you can't address a problem if you don't acknowledge it exists. Um, But we find ourselves, I think, in this sort of circular pattern um, where we're constantly acting sort of as though this is brand new information and, all right, we've we've made progress by identifying it, but the the real sort of proof is going to be in the pudding. What comes of this and and how, how do we ensure that black and racialized residents aren't targeted by police. So what is next? Where does this need to go? 
There were some measures proposed in the report um, centering on use of of force and, uh, for example, mandatory review of body cam footage, debriefs that would be required, things of that nature. Um, But I I think part of this is going to have to come uh, in the form of reforms to the consequences for use of force where it was inappropriate to do so. Um, And I, I don't know that that is laid out clearly, that might need to be a legislative change that comes from the province. Uh, this reminds me of the situations in the military and sexual assault and harassment and such and, and how deep and, and systemic it is. Um, are, are you positive or are you hopeful, perhaps is a better word, that, that this will lead to at least some more light being shed on this? As a general rule, uh, I, I don't know that policing can be reformed uh, in a meaningful way to uh, absolutely get rid of these systemic issues. Um, So I think alongside um, whatever internal, external reviews are happening with police, um, we also need to be having conversations about how to invest in our communities and ensure safety by means other than our current carceral approach. Lawyer Karima Saad with us, Toronto's interim police chief, apologizing on uh, with newly released race-based information, uh, concluding that black people were not only disproportionately represented uh, in use of force incidents, but found that police pointed firearms more often at them. Karima, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Here we are, um, you know, I, I hopefully getting out of a global pandemic, although at this point, mm, I guess the phrase is learning to live with it. But it has been two and a half years, and we uh, are certainly looking at sunnier skies. And a new survey, uh, survey data suggests Canadians have more trust in their, more trust in their institutions and their neighbors since the COVID-19 pandemic. But Professor Kerry Wu, uh, lead author of this newly published paper, said that trust is highly correlated with how much money you make. To talk more about all of this, Kerry Wu with us, Assistant Professor, Department of Sociology, York University, and with us now. Kerry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. So before we get to the correlation to how much money you make and, and how that changes your attitude, what about how, Carrie, our views changed over the course of this pandemic? It seemed at the beginning, um, you know, we were all helping out. We saw all levels of government working together. We saw all political stripes working together. I remember where, you know, seven o'clock, we're all out in the front step banging our pots and pans to support the uh, healthcare workers and such. And then as we got to the latter part of this and vaccination, and specifically vaccination mandates and 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 when we got to like 90 percent of us vaccinated it seemed that we started to really get divided and pick on the 10 percent that weren't vaccinated was there a change in our attitude in the midst of this pandemic do you think yeah so yeah so uh early stage of the pandemic a lot of people seeing uh people helping each other right so then um mm. so over research look at like how people's trust in neighbors and in others changed during the pandemic we have data before the pandemic canadians are relatively very trusting prior to the pandemic mm. and we want to see how that changed uh, during the pandemic and like you said that some people 
uh, could be more trusting because they see people helping each other. And some people could experience negative, a uh, lot, lot of hardship and then lo losing loved ones, losing jobs, and then loss could make them less trusting. So, so we, with the survey data, we, we, we consider like might be like diff different parts of Canadian population could follow mm -hmm. in different trajectory of changes in their trust. Right, so that's kind of like over kind of expectation. Some Canadians could be more trusting, some Canadians will be uh, less trusting, and then some Canadians might not change their trust during the pandemic. So and we analyze the survey data, and we indeed find those three kind of patterns. So, uh, and we, we talked during the midst of this and at the beginning of this that it was affecting uh, lower income people and, and more so they were really the ones that were having the hardest time, whether it's it's losing uh, jobs or, or trying to get assistance to, to keep their head uh, above water. And, and, and obviously those people don't have the trust as, say, someone who's working for home in the confines of a good job and home. Yes, exactly. Right. So we, we look at the data to, uh, to, to, to consider who will more likely to fall in uh, decreasing trust trajectory. Right. Mm -hmm. So one major pre predictor is socioeconomic status. People who Canadians who have lower trust prior to the pandemic are also more likely to be uh, at lower socioeconomic status. And this group of people have become uh, less trusting uh, during the pandemic. But uh, m most Canadians are becoming more trusting because uh, Canadians are relatively trusting prior to the pandemic. And then uh, so we, we find that 58, almost 60 percent Canadians did not lose trust and they become more trusting during the pandemic. Uh, and it, that's trusting of their neighbors and more trust in their institutions. We're hearing so much in media about divisiveness and, and, and people having less trust in their institutions. How do you explain that, even though Canadians have a tendency to be more trusting than others? Yeah, so most people, they, most data or survey data, they look at uh, Canadian as a whole. Like they look at the overall trend. So it's difficult to, to, uh, disintegrate those different parts of uh, Canadian population, right? So overall trade, we did find, for example, people, there's a slight decline in people's trust in, in neighborhood, in institutions, but we use kind of like a three, more like statistical analysis, focusing on a mixed person kind of like approach expecting some people will be more trusting, some people will be less trusting. So we separate different parts of Canadian population. And then the, the data shows that majority Canadians have become more trusting. There's 20% uh, of Canadians have lost their trust. So you see mm. overall yeah. change and there's a different parts of Canadian uh, uh, change. So, but the majority of Canadians have become more trusting. So those are kind of like positive uh, news in terms of like how people change in their trust. What can we learn from this information, Carrie? So it's very similar to a lot, a lot of research showing that the pandemic exacerbate inequality, right? It exacerbate mm. inequality in income, for example. And some people are becoming richer and richer uh, during the pandemic, and then some people lost income, lost job. So the, the key message here is that really that 
we need to policy wise, we need to pay particular attention to like how those inequality being uh, exacerbated and then pay particular like specific response in terms of like how to help people that most need, uh, for example, lower trust people or people who lost job and promote trust among those Canadians or help Canadians that in need Carrie Wu with us, assistant professor in the Department of Sociology at York University. New survey data suggesting Canadians trust their, more trust in their institution and neighbor since the pandemic. But it also depends on how much money you make. Fascinating. Carrie, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Thank you. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Love having him on. And I thought it might be apropos to do a little social media 101 uh, with Carmi because I think I've been hacked. And, uh, you know, why not make a bit out of it? And why not get some extra help from the Carmi himself? Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist here. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I admire you putting yourself out there, Scott. You have I, I your experience to help others. That's very admirable. You know, I was going to say, so, Carmi, I have a friend. And, uh, you know, they asked me to ask you about it. So I was like, no, it's me. And I've seen that. And I'm only on, like, Facebook and Twitter. That's it for me. And it's for the job. I mean, otherwise, I'd have nothing to do with any of this because it's, it's anyway, yeah. too much toxic, toxicity for me. Anyway, so, mm-hmm. um, and I've noticed before on other people's things when they say they've been hacked, it's like all of a sudden you'll see the same picture like you know 10 times or 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 what have you what i noticed is i'm 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 looking at my i'm on my on my phone and i'm looking at the mobile app and i and you know i don't even know what my password is it's so complex and it's so and it's it's uh, anyway so it, when i go into the to the facebook it, it said well you know which password i'm thinking uh, it's never asked me this before. Why is it asking me this now? Then I'm thinking, Carmi says that when this happens, uh, a lot of the time they're just asking you to reboot the password so they have control. What's happening here, or am I freaking out for no reason? Well, the good news is, is you know, the way you describe it, I don't think you're being hacked. It's just you know, Facebook and other services, every once in a while, even though you can store the password, you can set it so that it automatically yeah, gives your password when you sign in or it keeps you signed in. Sometimes it'll sign you out after a little while just to sort of prompt you to sign yourself back in. It's a security thing. It's to make sure that just in case your device falls into the wrong hands that you still have an opportunity to re-authenticate. So that in and of itself isn't, uh, you know, you know, you know, kind of like a, uh, a siren or, you know, like a flashing red light. What is, though, is if you're minding your own business and you suddenly get an, uh, an email or a text message saying uh, your password reset code is, and it's got, you know, the, the four or six digits, whatever right. that is. Uh, and that means that there is someone out there who is trying to sign into your account. And what's happening is, is when they go reset password, it kicks off uh, an email or a text message to the address that you had given it previously. So that's the sign. If, if it just logs you out and, and uh, asks you to log back in, that's usually not uh, a signal of something bad. But when you start getting those text and email messages saying, here's your digit, you know, here's your code, uh, that's when you sort of have to wonder, oh, I think there's someone else on another device somewhere else who's trying to get in as me and obviously failing. What about when you all of a sudden get a friend request from friends that you already have, or if you go to that page, you can kind of tell, because perhaps it's the same picture loaded five or ten times, and there's not really any depth to it. What does mm-hmm. that reveal? That shows, and the good news is, is the friend who it looks like, they haven't been hacked. Their account is still 
secure, at least it should be, their account has been what we call cloned, is that someone or more, more likely uh, some bot, an automated bot, went and harvested some information from their existing account. So pulled their profile picture, pulled some you know details that are publicly available from their profile, and then used that to create another account that looks like them. And then they reached out to their friends because of course their friends list was public as well. They, were, they didn't lock that down and, and tried to become their friends that way. Uh, and so, the, you know, the, the the alarm bells that go off in my mind when I get Facebook friend requests like that is the first thing I do is like, hmm, I'm already friends with them. Let me go double check and make sure. So I go into my friends list and I, I look them up and sure enough, they're already friends. So, uh, you know, obviously this new account is a fake. It's a clone. Then, as you said, when you look at that fake account, because you should never accept a friend request unless you do your due diligence, don't just say yes, that puts you at risk then you realize that there's no substance there. There's no conversation. They don't leave any comments. All it is mm -hmm. is just a bunch of this, the same photo repeated over and over. And it's obvious that it isn't a real person. It's just software there. Best thing to do is just ignore it. And, or, you know, actually to help, you can report that account to Facebook or to whatever platform it is. And then you can also send a note. I also do this as well. I send a note to the person who is being cloned and say, hey, this is happening. You may want to go change your password. You may want to look at your privacy and security settings. And you might want to tighten those down a little bit as well. So again, that was my next question. What do you do if on social media you feel you have been hacked? Uh, first thing you do, well, first of all, you try to regain access to your account. So if you can sign into your account and you have control over it, you haven't been hacked, you're good. But right. mm -hmm. if you're seeing these funny things going on and, and you've got that squirrely feeling in your stomach, trust that gut instinct and say, okay, well, maybe I need to look. It's the same thing. If you think that there's a thief or a robber who's, you know, poking around the outside of your house, what's the, what's the mm -hmm. first thing you're going to do? You're going to upgrade your home security solution. So that's what you sort of have to do for your social media account as well. Go into the settings. First thing you do is you change your password to something unique, hard to guess, uh, and then regularly change that password every month, two months, three, three months, whatever it is. But don't be using the same password indefinitely because that's how they get you too. When there's a breach, if you don't change your password after that, you're basically leaving your front door unlocked. Then also go back into the security settings and turn on what's called two-factor authentication or 2FA. Mm. Virtually every social media and web service and website and app offers it today. And the reason that's so important, it's like a second lock on your front door. Even if they manage to get your password, they're still going to have to get through that second authentication method, which could be a fingerprint reader, could be facial recognition, could be a PIN, could be something else. Whatever it is, make sure you have 2FA turned on. That is that, you know, that in addition to secure passwords that are regularly updated will go a long way toward ensuring that you are not victimized in this way. Is it easy to find this stuff on social media? Or do you have to spend an hour trying to dig it all up? Just go into your settings, and that's usually in the corner, right? You know, on Facebook, right. it's you know where your account settings are, and look for security, privacy. Uh, they're all they'll, they'll look a little bit different based on which particular service you're using. But right. poke around a little bit, you'll find it. What if you want to get off? You just you're out, you're done. They don't want to make it easy for you. I've tried that. I've set up, you know, what I, what I call dummy accounts just to test how easy it is to get rid of the account. And of course, if you're a Facebook or a Twitter or a Google, the last thing you want to do is encourage people to leave your service. And so they don't post how to get off of Facebook uh, articles, uh, you know, to, to, to be helpful. They don't, they don't sort of position the, the setting easily in your settings. Uh, they make you dig for it. They make you hunt around for it. And, and even worse, Every time they update their settings, every time they change the interface a little bit, 
they move it to a different place. So what I find <laughs> is I'll go looking for it in Google. I'll just do some Google searches and I'll find, I'll get an answer, but it's, you know, it, it points me to the way Facebook was six months ago, not the way it is today. Right. So very hard to find, but persist. If you want to get rid of your account, uh, you know, do persist. You'll find it eventually. They are buried deep. The problem here is, though, is because it's social media, even if you delete your account, recognize that a lot of the things that you posted or shared previously may still exist depending on how you share right. them on someone else's account, even after your account is gone. What happens if you die? Uh, there are, in fact, pretty much every social media platform has a, uh, a process whereby you can designate somebody who will be your, uh, you know, essentially caretaker in the event that you pass away or become incapacitated. Uh, so you can go into the settings and you can do that. Facebook uh, started it, but now everyone has pretty much followed it. It's probably a good idea. And, and it's not just social media. You really need to think that you know, when you plan for when you eventually pass away, you have to have a plan for your digital assets in addition to your yeah. regular assets as well. Mm. So, you know, start listing out the things that matter most to you. So all of your accounts, all of your settings, all things like that, and start talking to your loved ones and asking them, you know, like, like, would you be willing to be my designate? Um, and can I set that up now so that it doesn't come as a surprise when, you know, it ultimately does happen? These are conversations we need to have now. We need to include those digital assets in those sometimes hard to have conversations. A social media executor. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, someone who, you know, we, <laughs> that's we, bizarre, Carmi. It, it, it kind of is. But if you think about it, not really, because, you know, 30 years ago, uh, you know, an executor would take over all of our affairs and most of them were manual. They were out in the real world, whereas today a lot of our you know, personal affairs have moved into the digital space. So I kind of think that if I'm going to be an executor for someone, I would have to have my hands on the digital assets as well as the physical yeah. ones, too. Reminds me of the guy, uh, Bitcoin guy that forgot his password and gone. Sorry. Uh, Carmi Levy with us. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do? I wish I'd give it to Bob. Uh, Carmi <laughs> Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Always fascinating, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Between June 17th and 19th, University of Guelph student Coralie Alart aims to cross Lake Erie from Sturgeon Point in New York State to Crystal Beach, Ontario. And it's not over then. She's then slated to attempt Lake Ontario, the crossing from Niagara-on-the-Lake to Toronto between August 3rd and August 8th. Uh, both endurance swims uh, approved by the Solo Swims of Ontario and supported, and, of course, uh, support teams uh, on hand to watch all of this. But doing it once is one thing, but doing it twice over the course of a summer, my goodness. Uh, let's introduce you to Coralie Alart, open water marathon swimmer and advocate for youth mental health, which is a big part of all of this, and Coralie is with us now. Coralie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am well, and thank you for having me. So uh, doing it once is one thing. Uh, doing it uh, once in uh, June and then once in August is something uh, completely different. Which one of these two swims is the most challenging for you? Um, I personally would say Lake, Ontar Lake Ontario is the most challenging for uh, most, most marathon swimmers. And what's the reasons for that, comparing, uh, compare the two? Um, one would be the distance of Lake Ontario compared to Erie. Two would be the currents involved in Lake Ontario compared to uh, Lake Erie. Um, so essentially in Lake Ontario, you'll have the Niagara Current um, pushing you out. Um, and then you'll have the Toronto Current um, coming into the Toronto Harbor that will push you towards Kingston. 
So uh, how and why two of these in one summer? Um, well, the goal uh, was to cross Lake Ontario, but um, in order to cross Lake Ontario, you have to do um, a trial swim. So to the board of the Solo Swims of Ontario, they recommended that um, Lake Erie um, would would qualify me um, for Lake Ontario, and it would be a good challenge um, for myself mentally and physically um, to do, and it kind of gives me more experience as an open water marathon swimmer. What about doing these? And I, I know they're only—I know they're just less than two months apart, but still, that seems you know like a lot. It, 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 how much of a factor is the fact they're so close together? How does that affect your training? Um, it actually doesn't. It's pretty aligned with my training regimen um, of like building up distance and then backing off the distance. So um, right now, like I'm averaging between like thirty to sixty kilometers a week in the pool. So. I mean, I'm already at that point that I can like hmm. swim potentially like 50k um, consistently. Uh, so it's just trying to like continue to build to that level. And you talked about how uh, doing Lake Erie first and the solo swims of Ontario, who obviously uh, the organization involved in this. What do you have to do to swim the lake? It's not like a case of everybody can just jump in and go, is it, or is it? Um, no, so you have to um, apply um, through Solo Swims of Ontario, submit an application. Um, they review your background as a swimmer, and um, they do medical backgrounds. Um, and then essentially you have to train, put together a training log of swims that you have done, and then you're assigned a swim master. Then you'll have to do a trial swim for each lake that you want to swim, and um, there's a distance and a time requirement for them all. And essentially, if you pass a trial swim, then you qualify to do a lake. And you're not allowed to attempt to swim across a lake unless you actually qualify through the proper channels of doing it. Um, and, like, you can't just go out there and, like, swim a right. lake by yourself or the Coast Guards will, like, pull you out. Right. So essentially, like, you have to have insurance and ever, all these proper documentations, like, filled out way in advance um, in order to do this. And you're an advocate for youth mental health. How do these two correlate? Um, so for swimming, um, I got into marathon swimming about in 2020 after I went through a traumatic experience in 2019. And it was just my way of coping through my own mental health struggles. And I um, developed a passion for swimming and um, putting my story out there in a positive way to um, hopefully inspire youth. Um, out there that are going through their own struggles that it's okay not to be okay um, and it's okay to do um, small things or big things during challenging times. Coralie Alert with us, open water marathon swimmer and advocate for youth mental help and going to do it twice, uh, June 17 and 19. Uh, this is Lake Erie from Sturgeon Point to New York State's Crystal, uh, in New York State to Crystal Beach, Ontario. And then again, August 3rd to 8th from Niagara on the Lake, uh, to Toronto. Uh, my goodness, Coralie, that is quite a feat. Good luck to you this summer. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the tax-paying customer, to have the last word. I'm Kasim. Um, thanks for... 
moving the show to 3 o'clock because now I can listen to it while I come back from home for the first half hour. And I look forward to listening to it more in the future. Thanks. Wow. Thank you very much.